this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining us once again is my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, you've been here for, out of 356 episodes, I think 355, I think you missed one. Is that possible? Yeah, uh, that is possible. I think there was an interview you did maybe without me or two. There may be one or two, yeah. I yeah. think you, I think you missed the Shonen Knife interview and maybe the Happy Chichester. The Happy one was. There you go. That was about it. So uh, I will have to dock your pay for those <laughs> two episodes. I'll have to. Um, I owe you money. Prorate your uh, your your decade salary since that's how we're getting paid at the right. end of the decade. After the end of the 10 years, we get our royalty check. So, Jay, this episode is one of our roundtables. It's one of our series that we do. It's called Sophomore Slump Revisited. It's where we take an album, a sophomore album, the second, the follow-up to the debut, and we try to figure out what happened. And what we mean by that is usually this is a case where the album that was the debut sold a ton. We had a lot of those in the 90s where you had just ridiculous numbers of sales for CDs in the 90s. And a lot of bands, such as the one we're going to talk about, sold, you know, millions on their first record. And then the second record comes out and they might only sell half or a third or a quarter. And we try to go back and figure out, you know, was the record not very good? Did they rush it out? Was it the wrong time to release the record? Did the, it just not connect? What what happened with the second record? And is it worth revisiting? And the sophomore slump isn't a unique phenomenon to the 90s, but it was certainly no. am, amplified, I think. It's not even a u- unique uh, slump for music. It's, uh, you know, yeah. sports and other endeavors. <laughs> I don't know what other endeavors would be. Sure. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Do you apply, do you apply that to movies? Do do. Movies have sophomore slumps. Ah, uh, the the first sequel. Yeah, that we talking mean. Yeah, is the is the second Transformers as good as the first Transformers? <laughs> I think generally the third one is the worst. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then they bounced back once uh, Mark Wahlberg got involved. Um, let's talk about Silverchair Jay, and to do so, and discuss their sophomore album, Freak Show, which came out in February of 1997. We have a roundtable of folks who have joined us before. Jeff Takis from Rocket Fuel Podcast, welcome back. Thank you. You've been uh, here many times. I don't have to explain anything about anything to you about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel like uh, we could probably just hand this over to you once in a while and just let you run the uh, roundtable when, when Jay and I are, go on strike for some reason. Or, yeah. you know, we pull a, a Bo and Luke uh, ep season of uh, Dukes of Hazard and let uh, Coy and Vance take over. Oh, and, and Jeff, you know how babies are made, right? <laughs> yes, I do, in fact. So, yes, we, don't, so. We, we don't have to explain anything then. You we got it all to, down. You got it all down. This is fantastic. Babies all grown up. Maybe we can turn it over to, to, to our other guest, Joe Royland 
from the Sit and Spin vidcast. He's he's been here enough times. I think that that's what's going to happen. I think season eight with Joe and Jeff as they sit in while, while Jay and I go to the beach to count our money. And uh, <laughs> sounds like fun. To account, you guys can the... uh, tear ass around in the general Lee for yeah, a season. There you go. <laughs> Hang out with Roscoe and and then for his first roundtable, but he's a returning guest of our show. He's from the band Hollow Earth, who if you have not checked out, you should go to uh, the various websites, the Facebook, the Bandcamp, uh, and also check out their awesome co- uh, cover of Failure's Heliotropic, which uh, gets the thumbs up from the none other than Mr. Kelly Scott. Welcome back to the show, Steve. Hey guys, thanks for having me. We're going to talk Silverchair, and I want to ask everybody, before we get into this, um, were you fans of Silverchair back in the 90s, or was this a band that, because they got tagged with the, you know, teenage Nirvana descriptor when they released their first album, Frog Stomp, in 95, did you avoid them, or was this something you were on board with from the beginning. Steve, I'll start with you since I ended with you there in the introductions. All right. So, yes, indeed I was. I feel like uh, I might be a few years younger than some of you fine gentlemen. What? Um, <laughs> Not possible. <laughs> so that was a big reason why I actually wanted to join the conversation was maybe to uh, to give a voice to a younger generation. I was in middle school um, Oof. when when the, when they were prevalent so okay i was already a fan i remember riding my bike to the record store with uh with a friend and i picked up uh the offsprings ixnay on the ombre and he grabbed freak show and then you know we sat with him for a week and then we traded you know because we didn't have enough money to each buy our own copies mm-hmm. and uh you know i remember feeling like uh you know i felt like he got the better end of the deal to be honest. That's an interesting perspective, and I think that's going to come up when we go through our Patreon comments about age having a difference when people arrived at this record and Silverchair in general. So, Joe, let me ask you, were you a fan of Silverchair back in the day? Did you pick this record up when it came out? I was. I didn't buy it, though. I got it for free. Like, I did a lot of records back then because I was working in a record store, so I pretty much got most of my albums for free at that time but i was looking forward to it when the debut album came out i actually have um an early australian pressing of that album um and i quite dug it when it first came out so i I was looking forward to this so is it any different than the american release or is it pretty much the same track list it's pretty much the same track list but it just has it's on a different label it's on just a uh, i think murmur and not um, Epic or Sony, whatever it was that came out here. Gotcha. Okay. Jeff, how about you? Were you a fan of the band back in the day, and did you pick this up? Um, I was not. Um, actually, I, I was not really into Silverchair at the time uh, and did not pick up the record. On the other end of the spectrum, I didn't hate them either. Um, they just really weren't uh, a band that registered uh, for me at the time, so I didn't pick it up uh, in 97. By contrast, I was in college then. Um, which makes me feel really old, but, um, I, uh, yeah, I just, um, I I didn't, they just weren't, um, like I remember frog stomp. I remember today or tomorrow, I mean, and, um, you know, I, I liked them, but just not enough to buy, uh, either frog stomp or freak show. So it wasn't until, I don't know, five or eight years ago that I kind of 
did a major revisit of bands like silver chair that I didn't get into, uh, at the time to see if I could, um, you know, enjoy them now. And, uh, and I do, I, I enjoy them very much. And so, uh, it was, you know, much later that I got into, uh, this record for sure. Cool. Well, that's good. That's a different perspective. Jay, I'm curious. I don't remember if you were listening to silver chair or not when we were in college. Uh, I listened to the first record. Um, I ha- I own that when it came out. I bought it. Um, yeah, I mean, I got into them. I think it was a, that was a point for me where I was picking up a lot from radio. So that mm. that album was pretty huge. Yeah. Um, I don't remember listening to this record. I don't own this record. Um, I do remember. I think Freak was a radio single. Yeah. Uh, I remember that getting some airplay. Um, but I kind of lost the band uh, after the first record and didn't follow much after that. Okay. I want to mention a comment from our Patreon page, and I'll sprinkle those in throughout the episode. Uh, Tara McCook said, There is no way I can be objective about this record. I loved it, and I love it now. Abuse Me, Freak, and Cemetery are still on my phone 20 years later. They took some really interesting chances with their sound on this record, and while it clearly didn't pay off as much in the U.S. as it could have, it still sounds great. A big element of why my friends and I love Silverchair so much was their age, to be honest. They'd be, there were peers of ours, and it was great to see kids like us making non-Hanson music. They're the reason why I picked up my bass and had my I'm going to start a band phase. So that's an interesting perspective, because this is, this is the same year, 1997, of Hanson and the Spice Girls and sort of the return of uh, pop music, safe pop music away from grunge and alternative and indie and what have you is dominating the uh, charts um, and dominating uh, radio. And uh, that's a unique perspective like what with Steve provided earlier, a little bit younger demographic getting into the record right away. Whereas um, I'm like UJ, I did not pick this record up when it came out. I think I heard the singles and that was about it. I didn't actually give it much of a listen. Now what's weird is that I, I ignored this band basically up until their um, 2000, what was it, uh, 2007 album, Young Modern. I had read something in like NME that it was getting good reviews or one of those British magazines. So I decided to go check it out and I actually really liked that record. I kind of, I think I went back and listened to Diorama and Neon Ballroom then, but those records didn't really connect with me. But I still really like Young Modern quite a bit, and but it sounds a lot different than uh, what this record sounds like or what Frog Stomp sounds like. So I want to throw some numbers out just so everybody knows uh, what we're going into with this record. Frog Stomp came out in March of 95. It made it to number nine on the U.S. album chart, and it made it, it went double platinum, which is two million. In Australia, it went four times platinum. Now, platinum in Australia is 70,000, so that's 280,000, but it made it to number one on the Australian charts. Now, Freak Show only made it to number 12 in the U.S. charts, which isn't that bad. I mean, it's a difference of three. However, it only made it to gold, which is 500,000, so that's a quarter of what Frog Stomp did in the U.S., It also dipped in Australia. In Australia, again, it made it to number one, but it did half the sales. It only sold 140,000 as opposed to the 280,000 that the debut sold. And 
as far as singles go, there's the same drop-off. Tomorrow is number one in both the U.S. and Australia. Uh, they managed to freak ended up going number one in Australia, but they never had a number one single in the United States. And um, Pure Massacre and Israel's Son both charted top 40 in the U.S., whereas um, they did manage to score a top five hit with Abuse Me, but after that, it was pretty much all Freak made it to 29, and that was it. Um, they did release singles for Cemetery and The Door in Australia, and those both charted. So I, you can see that there's quite a bit of a drop-off, both in the U.S. sales and then in the overall sales for Australia and then the rest of the world. Um, so I think what we want to try to do is figure out, because, and I don't know if you guys checked out any reviews or not, but the reviews tended to be somewhat positive um, on this record, critically, especially comparing it to the first record. And that's, I think, will come up when we talk about this record. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Joe, since you heard this record when it first came out, in revisiting it now, what was the what were the things you know one or two things that really stuck out to you um, revisiting this record now versus when you heard it originally back in 1997, better or worse? Well, here's the thing: <laughs> listening to it again now, because this was the first time I really had dug this album out in a decade at least, and aside from the hits, I really didn't remember much about it and listening through it was like eh, it's all right and I, I even remember back at the time I remember thinking I, I listened to it maybe for a couple of months and then just forgot about it it was it wasn't as much of a priority on my list not as much as frog stomp was I listened to that record a lot more mm-hmm. and even even when the following Silverture albums came out I would probably listen to the hits and then forget about them until like diorama and young modern like you were talking about that's probably still my favorite album by them if I'm gonna listen to a Silverture album that's the one I always go back to but aside from uh, listening to hearing the singles, like I still like Abuse Me, I still like Freak. I agree with uh, some of the comments that were made on the Facebook page. Like, I can't believe there wasn't a lawsuit over Slave from uh, the Mad Season camp because yeah. that song totally rips off. Was I don't know anything. So close that I, I really can't believe there wasn't a lawsuit over that one. But going back, I mean, I, I can hear the progression of the band uh, from the first album to the second one. I, I would have to agree that they they did experiment a bit more. They got tighter, but there was just nothing that held my interest as much uh, now as opposed to then. I, I can see why I kind of forgot about the album quickly back then. And it may have been, like you were saying, it may have been an age difference. Um, you know, I think if I had been younger, I probably would have been more into it. But at the time, I was probably almost 30 when the album came out. So it was just something that wasn't as important to me anymore. 
Okay, interesting. Um, Steve, now you were just a young pup when you first got this record. Now that you've <laughs> matured into a, a thoughtful adult with a much broader uh, musical catalog to draw from, uh, where where do your uh, where do you fall on this record in terms of you know the things that worked then and maybe don't work now or opposite were the things that you didn't like then or like now like how has this record evolved for you? That's interesting. I I feel like um, kind of like I think Tara and both Whitney said in the comments on the Patreon page like it's it's hard for me to be impartial or or objective to this thing because um, you know I I fell in love with it back then. And even today, I mean, even if it's just mostly steeped in nostalgia, um, I love the record. Um, but yeah, I am able to look at it through a different lens now. Um, I kind of see the B side as being like almost like like a very different record. And, you know, th- like hearing about uh, I think even just in the description for the for the episode that you put like <laughs> that, they were like written off as grunge wannabes. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I started thinking more about it from that perspective and like, but I'm like thinking, well, they did kind of expand their sound and their influences, but a lot of it really is kind of on the B side, like, like any expansion of their sound that they did, like you start the record off with slave freak abuse me, which is almost like a mirrored image of rape me lie to me, a fast punk song, no association, which is like utter helmet worship in the riffing. And it's darker and heavier. And then, you know, Cemetery, which was which was probably the song that threw me for most of a loop even back then. Um, but now I look at that and I'm like, oh, were they kind of going for like a disarm smashing pumpkin sort of thing, especially by making it a single? Um, but yeah, I think the B-side of the album, like if, if you were to come at the record from a total skeptic from the first record, having written them off as derivative or, or whatever have you, you know, you start the record from the door, you know, and listen to the B side of the record. I think you would see a very different side of the band. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, like, you know, the way the record opens up, it's it's kind of like a very much, you know, kind of what you would expect a second album from them to sound like. It's just a little bit darker. That's an interesting perspective in terms of the two halves of the record, because um, I think it was you, you mentioned Whitney when you mentioned that uh, his favorite song is pop song for us. Rejects. He said, "I love this song for years. A great sing-songy verse with some subtle string accompaniment. That they definitely decided to open it up on the back end with adding strings and doing some a petrol and chlorine does some things with some non like stuff you would not expect Silverchair to be messing around with, at least if not from the first record. Yeah, and I think uh, in think looking back to." where they would go in the next couple albums. They also like young modern had a lot of strings on it from what I recall. So same with, same with uh, diorama. Yeah. yeah. Both of them. Jeff. So you came to this record a little bit later. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, when you first heard it, you'd, I mean, silver chair was inescapable in terms of tomorrow, obviously, right. but coming to this a little bit later, and having, you know, I guess uh, choosing to come to it as opposed to having it forced on you by radio, um, you can kind of, you know, ease into it a little bit more. What was your perspective on revisiting this record uh, for the show? 
Yeah. So the the first thing that jumped out at me, and I, I think it was every time I like decide to listen to Silverchair, I'm always like pleasantly reminded and surprised about how heavy they are as a band. Um, and so that was the first um, take that I had was like, gosh, like this band is really heavy, and I like that. Um, I know that some folks earlier talked about you know the first track on the record slave and you know maybe it being a a mad season copy when i remember revisiting this record for this episode and then when i listened to it the very first time um that's one of my favorite songs on the album and i continue to scratch my head as to why that wasn't a single for the record um again maybe there was some you know sensitivities to it being potentially labeled as a derivative but i just i really think that's a great opener and uh I, I thought they could make that um, a single. Um, I liked, um, I just tended to gravitate towards the heavier songs on this record. Um, I definitely recognize the attempts to broaden the sound um, throughout the, the, the record, even going like with track four, with which is Lie to Me, kind of doing that like more of a punk type uh, number, which is pretty cool, and then try to contrast that to Cemetery. Um, which I think is, um, you know, a, a pretty cool range uh, for this record. Um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I was trying to think about, too, what you had said, Tim, about, like, you know, why maybe this record didn't do as well as Frog Stomp. And I wondered if part of it was, you know, of course, when Frog Stomp came out, you know, these guys were like 15 or 16 years old. Right. And, you know, they're, you know, 18 months later or two years later putting out Freak Show. And, you know, all of a sudden, like that kind of like teen, like this is a teen grunge band, teen metal band, whatever they call themselves. Like, you know, that kind of like that only worked for like the first record. And I wonder if like, you know, as the the major label folks were trying to to tell the story of the band they could no longer kind of use that which is really a shame because they're writing this record and putting this record out when they're 17 which is pretty crazy to think about when you listen to this record i mean they're they're very you know again you can talk about you know they're trying to get their legs as far as songwriting and not being derivative but golly i wish i could play like that when i was 17 that's for sure yeah 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 definitely jay i you know i want to piggyback on something he just said um since you had not really listened to the record um but you had heard the first one i felt like in revisiting this the especially the guitar playing but overall just the overall performances by the band seemed like a much higher level you know when i listen back to like tomorrow that sounds like a very simplistic song in terms of its the how it's played and the construction of and everything. Whereas these songs, you know, like Slave, for example, there's a lot of changes to that song and, and it does a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I was curious if you had any thoughts on, in, in terms of hearing this for the first time, um, you know, comparing it to the first record and the, and the complexity and the, and even the production sounds, you know, heavier and thicker yeah i think the record sounds great i mean um i i, I remember frog stomp to a couple things about it um i would i think we're a couple years older than them and i just remember hearing it and at least being like blown away and how young they were and how good they sounded when that record came out now mm-hmm. at the same time I, I do remember that record sounding a little bit on the thin side um and i think i saw a couple television performances they they had done and 
I was sort of in the same ballpark where, you know, the, to pull off the three piece thing, it, it's pretty tough to do. It takes um, some seasoning to get there. This record, I think, sounds it does sound bigger, but it doesn't sound overproduced to me. Um, it's they hit a sweet spot with this where you, you, you get that the rawness that's on the first record, but the production is just a little bit uh, better. The tones are better. The playing's better. I mean, for a for a second record, I think one of the things that a lot of bands suffer from is they just don't spend enough time on it. I don't get that sense with this record. I get this sense that it sounds like they played these songs a lot and really um, you hear the performances come through um, and you also hear an evolution of the band. I think Stephen talked about the second half of the record really starting to go in a whole new direction that um, I, I didn't remember. I mean, I remembered vaguely that they started going heavier because I remember the singles um, being heavier um, and more of the drop tune tuning kind of thing. Uh, but the second half of this record, I, it was completely um, a surprise to me uh, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. So everything from Cemetery through the end, I, I liked where they were going with the, with the sound. I liked the, the sitars and the strings and even the acoustics and just all the different ways they were playing around with the sound of the band you know, pushing, but not getting to the point where it, it sounded absurd. Like it still sounded like the same band, just, you know, stretching, stretching a little bit. So. You definitely hear the evolution. They sound more mature. They sound like they've played a lot more. And to me, it sounds like they've figured out, you know, how to sound like the best rock band they can sound like on this record. And, and it's a hard line to walk when you talk about adding instrumentation or maybe trying things because, you know, if you if you do it and it's not successful you can get the band can get yeah. criticized for being oh well they're it's it's contrived and they're they're trying to do these things that they're are not in their you know sound but if they don't do them then it's like well they just keep making the same sound over and you know it's like it's a no yeah. win in some ways to uh to try to alter your sound that much but um sounds like you were on board with uh with those yeah. changes yeah, I think the maybe the vocal grounds it. Um, if you look at pop song for us rejects, like that's a good example of the verses on that are pretty poppy and acousticy and upbeat, and then the chorus is really heavy. And he just, I don't know, he does that like Kurt Cobain kind of drone on most of the record, and that to me ties it all together. Um, so they can do things that are up and down, or maybe a little bit more Smashing Pumpkins like production wise, or 
or do something heavy and or punky and I don't know he just always kind of is in his voice and it, it to me is what ties the whole record together. Now the the one band that came up and it was brought up on the show and then also in our comments by Gavin is uh, Helmet is one where um, I definitely did not hear any Helmet or any of that like I don't know what you'd call Helmet in terms of if they're like post rock or what have you but just that or post-hardcore, I'm not sure what where they fall exactly, but just that heavy drop-D riffage that they do, and and to a lesser extent, you know, Quicksand would be, I guess, sort of in that same vein in in uh, some respects. Um, but I was surprised at, like, how much I heard Helmet in in this record, and, and that guitar, Paige Hamilton's guitar playing, and, and I, when I looked, I was like, well, I wonder when the Handsome record came out because that's when that that kind of reminded me of some of the stuff that was going on. And I looked, and the Handsome record actually came out the exact same month as this record. In terms of bands having a connection to Helmet, I would not have expected the Silver the second Silverchair record to be, you know, mentioned at, at the same time as as the Handsome record as being a Helmet uh, based record, but. I guess it is like you guys have all mentioned it or, or a couple of you. And, and then it got mentioned in the comments as well. Um, and I also didn't really expect helmet to be all that influential. Um, so quickly, I, I think I've heard them more in the two thousands and with some bands and stuff. Um, and with metal bands sort of appropriating the sound, but, uh, are there other bands that you guys hear? Nirvana is the obvious one, but besides helmet, were there any other bands that you guys thought, there were similarities to in terms of either influences that you weren't expecting or um, like, like lie to me that that was a very punkish song, which I was not expecting to hear um, not and not punk in the green day uh, sort of nineties more, more radio friendly punk, but in like a heavier punk sound. Um, I'll just throw it out there. If anybody has any suggestions or, or, comments on other influences you hear on this record the one to me obvious one to me and i sort of mentioned was mad season a little bit alice in chains but to me it's like with the first album you you got it was it was mostly the influences seemed to be nirvana and, and a bit of pearl jam and then two years later just as any other person especially a younger kid they're going to get turned on to other bands and that's where you get your helmet coming in they kind of graduate up the next rung or two of the level the ladder and it's that's what I got from a lot of the of Silverchair's earlier albums. It's like they, you know, the, that's where I think their age showed a little bit, where they you could see where they were uh, being very influenced. They hadn't quite gotten their own sound to a degree they had, but not so much. But that doesn't really come in until like Diorama and Young Modern. That's where they finally sound like, hey, we're this band now. We're not copying all these other groups. One us. Uh... A uh, song you might want to A B with this that I'm sure nobody else picked up on, but um, "Freak" the riff to that song is almost identical to the song "Tank" by Life, Sex, and Death. You put those side by side. Really? Yeah. So. <laughs> Not expecting Life, Sex, and Death to make it out of this episode, but way to go, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. It's right there. But what? Um... You know. I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I was, the only other thing I was going to say is one other th- big difference between this album and it was a point you were bringing up as far as um, 
why there was some progression too is they had a better producer with this album too they had nick luaney producing this album who for some reason worked with a lot of australian bands he wasn't australian he was english but he worked with like nick Cave and the bad seeds and uh in excess and midnight oil and uh a ton of other australian bands um for some reason, Living End, uh, but, you know, he's also worked with a whole range of other people, too, as opposed to, like, Kevin Shirley, who did the first album, was and was pretty much an unknown at that point. That that album, I think, was the one that made him, was Frank Stomp, was the one who gave him a name. Interesting. Yeah, they definitely went with the bigger name for the second record, and not just in, in terms of uh, the album production, but when I was looking at, like, who directed videos, uh, they got um some bigger names for just directing the videos for the for the second record as well so and they actually for uh i was looking at they shot a video for um the first album for tomorrow and it was done in australia and then um (laughs) when they decided oh well we need to release the video like around the rest of the world because i i believe i need to go back and check but i think that there was like an element of them wasn't there like a contest involved that they won like that was yeah yes so it was a demo like a demo submission contest yeah yeah so the first video that they shot for tomorrow was by a person named carrie nagara it was for a music video show called sbs and then then they break around the rest of the world and they get mark pellington who did a ton of videos in the 90s to to shoot a US version of their video and then um uh they ended up getting uh Jerry Cassell who was in Devo to shoot a couple of the videos for this album who is who's done a lot of video production work so um they definitely like once the success hit started hitting with the you know the I guess that happened a lot in the 90s the budgets go up and they get to make a bigger video so I want to try to figure out you know where is it that this album didn't connect with people in terms of it it had singles, you know, freak was a single abuse me was a single. Um, they charted, they just didn't chart as well as tomorrow or even pure massacre was the second single off of frog stomp. And the album, as I mentioned, it, it did about a quarter of the sales in the U S and about half the sales in Australia. I want to go around the room and just, what are your thoughts on, was this timing with, when this came out in spring of 97 or actually February of 97. So still winter, this was originally slated to come out in the fall of 96. They finished recording this album. Um, I believe it was, they recorded it between May and November of 96. And there was going to be a push to have it out by like the uh, Christmas, I guess. And then um, they were on the same label. They were an Epic in the United States and Pearl Jam were going to put out No Code right around the same time. And so that actually came out in August of 96. But I guess Epic didn't want two, big of their, two of their big bands to come out around the same time. So they pushed the uh, Silver Trail album back to February of 97. So I don't know maybe if that hurt it or not. I'm not sure. But I'm just curious what anybody's sort of theories are on why this record did not do as well um, as the first record because they would actually bounce back on the next record. The Anna's song was a huge single. Um, it was mentioned in our comments and 
Um, it did better than quite a few of the singles on Freak Show. So they were able to, you know, chart again, both in the U.S. and Australia, pretty high. Uh, so, Jeff, any thoughts on why you think that this album didn't uh, sell or chart as well uh, compared to the debut album? Well, I mentioned earlier, um, maybe I wondered if the singles that were chosen for this record like I, I hear other songs on this album and think that they could have been singles. Um, nothing against freak or abuse me. Cause I think they're both good, good songs. Um, but I could have also have seen slave as a single. I could have seen the closing as a single. Um, I just, uh, it's hard to say. Um, but I just, you know, it's, it's hard for a band to, when you have a song, uh, you know, like tomorrow, it, it's hard to, put out a, a single or a song that's different than that song and yet still have the same level of connectivity with, with the audience um, and, you know, not be rejected as, you know, tomorrow too. Um, so it's, it's tough. I, again, I, I really would have liked to have seen, you know, maybe a third, I know like, you know, cemetery and the door were singles in Australia, but I would have loved to have seen a third single in the States um, you know, whether that would have been Slave or The Closing or or even, you know, one of the other tracks that's been talked about uh, on this episode. Okay. Joe, what are your thoughts on why Freak Show did not uh, measure up to the success of Frog Stomp? Well, to me, the biggest thing was that uh, when Frog Stomp came out, it was 1995. It was pretty much the year alternate alternative radio broke i mean i know that's when we got our first alternative radio station here that was just strictly solely alternative music and not just like the typical rock station that was playing some alternative music so silverchair had the benefit of being one of those bands that was being introduced with a whole bunch of other bands to this whole new market of people whereas when um this album came out freak show Two years had gone by, and, and 1995, grunge was on its way out, but still had some legs. But by 1997, grunge was kind of starting to be over. And so the band just didn't have the same marketability. It was like people were kind of like, oh, it, it's that sound again. Well, we're kind of moving on to something else. And even though the songs were good and the band had progressed, it still was perceived as being, Oh, it's that same old thing. We want to hear this new thing now. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and when I mentioned Pearl Jam before, you know, they had kind of moved on from that sound at that point and Soundgarden were gone by this point. They had broken up by 97. Right. And Allison chains were kind of a mess at this point with, uh, with Lane Staley and so, and I think uh, Stone Table Pilots were broken up, I believe, at this point as well. So, you know, that's a good, that's interesting that the, the grunge sound had sort of worn out its welcome by this point. Yeah, they weren't, Stone Table Pilots were kind of more on hiatus than broken up. Well, hiatus, yeah. Separate, yeah. But you mentioned in a song, and, you know, you listen to that song, and that's pretty different from anything in their catalog up to that point, too. It's, the most poppy sounding song out of the first three albums, I think. So where they kind of bounce back with that, I think that was wise because they finally were like, Oh, here's something a bit more from us that maybe you haven't heard. Yeah. I remember that. And I think Anthem for the year 2000 is the other single off of that record that 
charted pretty well in the U.S. So they were still they were able to modulate their sound a little bit, but still able to um, to have continued success. So, Steve, I know you were a big fan when they came out. Where when you were uh, tooling around in your bike, uh, were there other kids that were also uh, checking out Silver Chair? Were you and your friend pretty much alone uh, in in loving the Silver Chair back then? No, no, the the whole friend group, um, we were crazy about them. My first uh, uh, foray at being in a band, um, I think we covered four of the first five songs on the record, uh, or at least tried to. <laughs> uh, it's like somebody else said earlier, like, yeah, I really wish we could have been as good as they were. Um, you know, we were just a couple of years behind them in age and uh, nowhere near, nowhere near that talent level. Um but yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were they were pretty well liked. I mean, I felt like even you know I went to a Catholic school growing up, um, so even I felt like the kids that we would call like the preps, um, you know, there was there was always kind of some talk about silver chair. So it was pretty it was pretty widespread for, for the age bracket, and I really do think that um, it was just it was inspirational, right? Like you're young kids first getting into playing bands, and you look and and you see that. You know, these kids wrote Frog Stomp and had it break through, you know, at the age of 15, 16. And you're just like, you almost don't even believe it. You're like, this is some sort of rumor that, you know, got started and, and spread like wildfire. And maybe it's just not even true. Like, how can how can a high school band even sound that good? Right. That's not a word I would have. Inspirational is not a word I would have pegged to this album. But that's interesting. And, and we're Frog Stomp. But I guess if you're a kid that's you know, a teenager and you hear these kids making the sound and, and doing what they're doing, that is pretty inspirational. So a lot of, there's a lot of jaded older music writers who did not take that into account when they were writing <laughs> reviews for these albums. That's true. Well, That's true. Well, Tim, you had also made the point, you mentioned Hanson earlier too. And then by the time Hanson comes out the same year, Hanson are now the new teen band making music all on their own. And right. they're even younger. You know, so I think it was was it Steve that made that point about why they didn't continue pointing out the fact that yeah they were a young band still because you know now they've been dethroned as the young band making music. I mean, granted, there's a world of difference between Hanson and Silverchair, but you know maybe that's why they didn't want people confused with oh this is that teen band making music. Well, and also I think you know when you listen to the lyrical content of this record, it's really dark. I mean, yeah. So when you have to compare that to Hanson, who are singing Mbop, I mean, yeah, I can understand why twelve and thirteen-year-olds who are you know just getting into music, they probably might lean towards the Hanson because it's more melodic and it's upbeat and you can bop your head to it. Whereas this is probably a little bit scary. <laughs> To be honest, if you're if you're just like a preteen and you're just like just discovering music in 1997, this almost this sounds like something that older kids would be listening to, and you'd probably want to stay away from because it's you know dangerous or something like that. But I mean, I remember you know the first record. Obviously, there's some dark lyrics and whatnot. Um, there really there really is. I I I just want to chime in. I mean, suicidal dream. Uh, pure massacre, Israel's son. I, I think there was some sort of lawsuit involved with uh, there was with Israel's son. So, like, even on the first record, I mean, shit was pretty dark. If I came home at that age 
I was like, yo, mom, dad, check out this song. It's called <laughs> Suicidal Dream. You know, like, I felt like they would have definitely had something to say about it, which was another reason why it was so hard to believe that this music came from from kids that age. That I remember specifically thinking that, like, what do their parents think of this shit, man? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. What was the lawsuit? I don't remember that. But it was like, there was some, they were being sued for, like, a wrongful death like somebody who were trying i think it was the case in australia and they were saying how uh some song had influenced these kids to kill people and themselves uh they, they yeah lost. okay here in here. january 19 january 1996 a murder case for brian bassett 16 and nicholas mcdonald 16 claimed that the pair listened to israel's son from frog stomp which contributed to the murder of bassett's parents and younger brother and the lawyers were trying to blame it on, like, the lyric, hate is what I feel for you, I want you to know that you, I want you dead, which were almost a script to kill them, they said, they claimed. It got thrown out of court, but uh, that was what they were trying to say. Wow. That never works, right? I mean, there's been a number of lawsuits against musicians for their lyrical content, whether it was Judas Priest or Ozzy Osbourne, and those things never work, right? Those always get thrown out. I can't... I, I... Well... Yeah. What are you going to do? Dig up Shakespeare and blame it for Romeo and Juliet? I mean, right, exactly. (laughs) So we've come to the point in the show where we need to talk about whether this was actually a sophomore slump or not. Um, We've already talked about the numbers, we've reviewed the record and, and given our thoughts on it, but we need to go around and give our official tally on whether Freak Show qualifies as a sophomore slump from our perspectives which is more of a musical than a numerical uh, opinion so i'm going to start with you jeff is this a sophomore slump or is freak show really uh worth revisiting i would say that freak show is not a sophomore slump and that it's a really solid second record and a really um, great follow-up to Frog Stomp. And uh, musically, uh, it's, you know, it's got some heavier tunes. Um, it's, you know, got the the grunge sound, of course, similar to Frog Stomp at times, um, but also shows some diversity along the way. And uh, I think it's I think it's definitely worth revisiting and um, musically not a sophomore slump. And, uh you know, just a great continuation uh, from a very young band. It was, it was, it's a, it's a cool record. All right. So we've got one in the no column for sophomore slump, Steve, sophomore slump. Yes or no. No way. I knew that was, that was, <laughs> that was an easy one right there. <laughs> um, I think that um, kind of like Joe was talking about, I think it was maybe doomed um, with the timing of everything. Um, and I, I do think the single choice too. I want to also echo what Jeff said. I, I think the single choice was rough. Um, Metro Detroit area, I was listening to a lot of radio at the time. I don't recall hearing Freak on the radio. I definitely recall Abuse Me quite a bit. And and in my memory, in my recollection, I thought that was the lead single. Um, and I remember, you know, as a huge fan of the first record, like trying to like kind of convince myself that I liked that song. I was like, oh, you know, it gets, it gets kind of heavy at the end. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember thinking that was a kind of a weak choice. And in hindsight, I kind of think Roses would have been a really cool single. I don't know if anybody else thought that or not. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it, they're still such a young band. They're still finding themselves. Um, and I just think that, you know, 
a lot of his talent as both a vocalist and a songwriter are are on display on this record. You might have to look for him a little bit. Like you might have to, like I said, shuffle past those first few tracks um, if you're coming at it from the perspective that they're derivative or, or you know, they were just another contender in the search for the next Nirvana. But yeah, I, I really think that um, that there's a lot of good material and and it's uh you know like Jeff said, it's a nice second record. So that's two in the no column for not a sophomore slump. Joe, are you going to make this uh, a three for three in the no column for sophomore slump? Yeah, I am. Uh, Because even though the record doesn't do as much for me now, you can't, I, I have to echo Jeff and Steve that, you know, you can't argue that there's growth on this album. You can't go by the numbers. You got to go by the artistic merit of the record. And there's definitely growth. It's still really impressive that these were young kids that were making music that, that was this complicated, you know, and, and dark. And uh, it, it's it, even if it's not impressive to me taste wise necessarily, it's still damn impressive. And uh, it showed that they were moving on to, to they were going to go on to do bigger and better things, which to me, they definitely did. But uh, it's not a slump. I can't, I can't call it a sophomore slump. All right. Jay, what do you think? I agree. Um, based on the growth, um, I, you know, I think it's pretty sophisticated. Yes, it's um, derivative at times, but even when it's derivative, I, st- I still was enjoying it. I, I think a good sometimes, uh, you know, you and I have to be st- way overcritical of records and focus a lot. But sometimes I just pay attention to when I'm kind of nodding my head and getting into a record when I'm not really focused on it. And I did that a lot with this record. Um, so I, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um I think it's probably a case of bad timing. I, I think this record still, I think at this point, they got a little bit of a bad rap f- from the first record. Um, there, there was a little bit of a, I, I think just sentiment looming around them about, you know, sort of the grunge thing. And I think at that point we had our fill of the straight up grunge sound. So when this record came out, it was still a little too angry, I think in dark, whereas I, I think a lot of records, they find a better balance. So, I think it was just bad timing um, in terms mm-hmm. of what this record was doing and turn and, and pop be, the ability to have a pop breakthrough. But I think it's just a rock record. My, forget all the success and sales and the pop side of it and just evaluate it as a as a hard rock record or an alternative rock record. I think it's it's pretty damn good. All right. Well, it looks like we have a unanimous. It's not a sophomore slump on Silverchair's Freak Show. It has been redeemed. Although I, based on the comments that we got, there was a lot of love for this record to begin with, so I'm not surprised uh, that we have come to that conclusion. 
So, Jay, we need to thank our guests for this episode. Steven, what is up with your band? Where where are you guys touring? Um, we actually just finished um, a tour. We were out for about a month. Um, we covered most of Canada. We 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 went all the way from uh, as far east as uh, Nova Scotia, Halifax, to uh, Calgary and Edmonton. And Joe was actually in your neck of the woods. Our our first time in Maine. We nice. played um, Portland. We played. Uh, I think it's just called Portland City Music Hall. Yes, a nice venue. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, we opened for a band called Every Time I Die. Oh. And uh, it was great. It was a good time. But uh, we actually have some time off. We don't have anything booked right now. Um, and so we're just going to start working on the next LP. Excellent. And where can people go to find your music? Um, oh, it's out there. It's on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp, YouTube, all those good things. Although, beware, there is another Hollow Earth somewhere over in Europe. And they're, uh, they're very different. <laughs> so <laughs> most, of, most of our handles online are, are Hollow Earth INC. Um, or on Instagram, we're like hollow.earth. So, yeah, just uh, try to find the, the space metal looking band. And I, not, not so much the guys in masks that are playing around with some sort of dubstep incorporation. I, I don't even know. Dubstep. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe there could be a collaboration at some point. <laughs> oh, wouldn't wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Uh, Joe, thank you for coming back. Oh, thank you guys for having me again. Plug your stuff. Tell people where they should go. Oh, you can find me on Facebook and YouTube and uh, Twitter and Instagram at Sit and Spin with Joe. Uh, I think it's there's a hype in between the sit and spin and with Joe on Facebook, but pretty much all the other plays, it's just, I think on, uh, it's just sit and spin with Joe. So, but all right. I'm on all those places. You can find me in all those places. And Jeff rocket fuel podcast.com is the place that people want to go, right? Yep. Uh, what's, uh, what's your current episode? So the one that's out, right now is um my fest 16 preview uh episode uh where i talked to the uh the guy who organized founded and runs the the festival his name is tony weinbender and we kind of this is actually before the fest itself happened which was this past uh weekend the last weekend in october and uh we kind of go through uh what it's like to put something like that together and kind of talk about some of the the new stuff that's happening this year around and, and some of the issues uh, around putting together a festival of that magnitude. And uh, I play a bunch of bands that were playing the, the fest weekend and uh, it was fun. And if people want to stick around, uh, Jeff is going to let me um, badger him with questions about hum and our bonus Patreon uh, comment uh, section of this. Uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash dig me out to hear uh, me ask uh, very uh, specific and nerdy questions about seeing Hum live in the year 2017. So uh, with that, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For Jay, I'm Tim, and we're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www 
patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Throw the sailor.